0: We have Leon Hill. We have been quote unquote Instagram friends for a few months now, ever since he invited me to be on his podcast where we chatted about biohacking and we realized we actually have quite a lot in common. We both are natural health and herbal medicine advocates. He has a master's in herbalism and really, really knows what he's talking about when it comes to plant medicine. So today we dive into so many different things about different plants that you can use for different things like boosting testosterone, skin health, youth, polyphenol intake, antioxidant intake, just different things that are really, really important for upping your nutrition game. We also get into travel biohacks, what type of salt you should be having what you should eat if you go out for fast food or to a restaurant. So it's it's quite an in-depth episode with a ton of detail and a ton of information. I think everyone's going to really like it. So let me know what you think, and I hope that you enjoy today's show. If somebody was listening to this podcast for the first time and had just heard about biohacking, how would you describe it to somebody who's never heard the term before?
1: So for me, I love the word biohacking, but I also... Don't necessarily. I I mean, I think to a certain extent, the word biohacking is just a trendy term that a lot of people have coined to make something out to be more special than it is. And in saying that, I'm kind of diminishing what I do. I am a biohacker. This is what I do for a living. I teach people how to get more out of their mind and their body. But really all this is, is learning how to control your environment to optimize your mental and physical function. And really, that comes down to something that human beings have been doing as long as we've figured out that we can do things to make us feel better, which is taking care of your health. Now, there are, of course, other things on top of it. There is the aspect of using crazy technological devices to do things, self-quantification and all that kind of stuff. But for me, I don't know if it's as a result of my childhood being brought up with hippie parents that believed that health was nothing more than putting the right things into your body. Or maybe it's the fact that you know, I'm a certified master herbalist and I really believe that for the most part, I think nature has created everything that we need and we just need to learn how to harness these things. But for me, at the fundamental source of it, biohacking does not have to be something that you need to be plugging yourself into a machine, that you necessarily need to be quantifying your biomarkers and, and all of this kind of stuff. For me, biohacking is just learning the things that you can do better on a daily basis, but also taking your daily practice or your daily life as far back as you can and as close as you possibly can to the way that our ancestors lived. And I guess at the fundamental basis of it, we are animals. We are no different than chimps or fish or whatever. We are squishy biological creatures. We operate on sun and on food and on water. The difference between us and most of the other creatures that inhabit this planet is that we have taken ourselves as far as possible as we can from the way that we were supposed to traditionally live. Now, all this has come down to big cities and EMF and all this kind of stuff, but there's no other animal that does this. We are, the, we are exclusive and special in the case that we have taken ourselves as far away as we possibly can from the way that we were traditionally supposed to live, in contact with the earth, having good sunlight on our skin and all that kind of stuff. So fundamentally for me, it comes back to trying to integrate as much of that as you can into your daily life, while living in a modern society. And I may sound like a bit of a hypocrite in talking to you because I'm talking to you over the magic of the internet, being able to record this podcast and me having a podcast of my own and all this kind of stuff. And I couldn't live the life that I do now without the modern marvels of technology. But in saying that, we are all a bit too caught up in it. And the further that we're taking ourselves away from nature and the, and the closer that humans are taking ourselves to this technological existence, the more I believe that we are damaging ourselves. And that's, that's what I'm seeing as a huge problem in society. So long story short, I would describe biohacking as learning how to control your biology, learning how to control the circumstances and the stimuli that result in the way that you feel, but also taking yourself back as close as you can to the way that human beings are supposed to live.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's honestly, it's finding the compromise between, like you said, the modern world and how we lived thousands of years ago. So where do you suggest that people start if they want to like embrace this new biohacking journey?
1: Well, that's a good question. There are an innumerable amount of places that people can start, whether it be podcasts like, like this one that people are listening to, whether it be books or a whole bunch of things. But I tend to recommend to people to try and not get scared off at the start. If you start delving into some information and it all sounds too space age, too technological or whatever, there are a lot of people in this industry. There are a lot of people out there that are... A lot smarter than you, there are a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me, and a little bit of an unfortunate side effect of people that are quite intelligent and that are quite passionate about what they do is that they sometimes forget that the average person may not understand the terminology that they're speaking about and I've been very guilty of this in the past of you know stroking my own ego and trying to make myself sound smarter than I really am by using you know fancy terminology and all this kind of stuff and If you're new into this world of biohacking, if you're new into learning how to optimize your biology, you'll probably start hearing medical terms or or biological terminology or, or things about the way that the human body or that our cellular systems operate and you won't understand it. And that's okay. I didn't understand most of this at the start. The only thing that helped me is my background as an engineer helped me with a lot of the physics and and all that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of stuff that you will not understand. And keep in mind that going down this rabbit hole of biohacking is literally going down a rabbit hole. You will never be at the end of your learning journey. So keep that in mind first. From that point, my first recommendation to everyone is podcasts because podcasts are the greatest learning tool, in my opinion, for being able to digest information, even if you're the kind of person that has no time whatsoever. The thing is, is that if you want to watch YouTube videos or read a book or whatever, you have to dedicate time to that. You have to set, set aside, all right, I'm going to spend an hour reading or an hour doing this and I find a big barrier to people learning is that most, a lot of people say, I don't have the time to do that. Well, you definitely have the time for a podcast. You drive a car, you might, Get a train to work. You might be able to listen to something while you're working. So start with podcasts. Some of my huge recommendations. People like Ben Greenfield, who, in my opinion, is one of the OGs in this industry. He can get a bit technical, so it may not be a good starting point for a lot of people. But Ben is, in my opinion, one of the most knowledgeable and honest people in the world of biohacking that I've I've ever heard speak. However, in saying that, uh, no, go ahead.
0: No, yeah, I was going to say a similar thing. Ben Greenfield, you know, he's. A wealth of knowledge, but he can go down his own rabbit holes listening to his episodes. So it can be a bit like too techy and sciencey for some people. But he's definitely one of the OGs.
1: Yeah. So that's Ben is one of my favorite podcasters that exists. But again, it's kind of again hypocritical of me to say. Don't worry about the terminology and then, you know, mentioning someone who is very heavy into terminology. But a recommendation I always give to people is start with a simple Google search. And I know this might not sound space age, it might not sound very technological, and it might sound very obvious, but find problems that you want to fix in your life. Find things that you're passionate about, like, you know, I, do you want to lose body fat? Do you want to have better skin health? Do you want to perform better mentally? And start Googling those things. You will start going down a rabbit hole. You will find teachers that specialize in that subject, you will find podcasts about that subject. And because you're passionate about that subject to start either because it's a problem that you want to fix in your own life or it's something that you'll get better at you are more likely to stick with that learning process because you're emotionally invested in it and for example you know i could tell you to go and listen to a podcast and let's say the first 3 episodes that you hear of a certain bio- biohacking podcast aren't of interest to you you might lose interest and go well this isn't for me but if you start off searching for problems that you are passionate about then it will help you continue down this journey so a great example is a lot of people scare, care about their skin health and although women will say that a lot of people may think that women care disproportionately about the health of their skin, trust me, the older guys get, the more that they care about their skin health and looking good as well and I'm very guilty of this. So skin health is something that I've found that almost everyone cares about. Everyone wants to look better. Start Googling about skin health. Start Googling about uh, herbal supplements that may help with your skin health but more importantly, start delving into the research behind it. It's very easy to get sucked into some product that says, uh, we are the greatest product known to man to help with your skin. You're going to look 10 years younger within 30 days. And most of that kind of stuff, as we know with marketing is, is bullshit. So start looking into the research behind it. If a company can't back up what they're selling, or if there's someone talking about some herbal supplement that is supposed to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. If there's no research, if no one can point to any scientific research behind it, and I'm not saying you have to delve into a 7,000 word scientific paper, especially if you have no you know experience with that, but there should be some scientific backing behind it showing that a certain product or a herb or a supplement works. So be wary of that. But again, find things that you're passionate about that you care about solving in your own life and start searching for them. And then it will, as I'm sure you'll agree, Brittany, it becomes an addiction. It becomes ne- a never-ending spiral. It just becomes something that seems to take up all of your time. And, and it's, I'm okay with that because I love doing this more than just about anything that I've ever found.
0: Yeah, I actually love that. The idea of making biohacking personable or health personable. And that's kind of why you stick to it. And that's honestly like how I got into it years ago and became a health nut, which is what it was called five, 10 years ago before it was called a biohacker was like exactly that, like Googling all of these different symptoms that I was having and not finding answers and having to go deeper and into the research and into books and different things. So I think that's an excellent point. So to on that point, like, what would you say that your first biohack was for yourself that you brought into your ritual or your daily routine?
1: If I'm honest, I probably don't know what the first one was. I guess I would call myself a biohacker for the last decade, 12 years maybe, before I even knew the term existed. But if I'm really honest, I have been biohacking, for want of a better term, ever since I was a child. My mother's initially from Austria. Uh, I'm the first person in my family born in Australia, and she's an old hippie. She has dreadlocks down past her ass. She, I, The first records I remember her listening to were, were you know, playing in the car with Bob Marley and, and Carlos Santana and stuff like that. Like My mom has been into this stuff as long as she's been alive. And I don't know what my first biohack was, but I guarantee it was something that my mom gave me. And through childhood, which is one of the things that I guess was such a passion of mine was herbal medicine, which is why I'm now a certified master herbalist. But I remember being a child, my mom, when we got sick as kids, there was never, you know, take this antibiotic, take this pill, take this thing. She would go out into the garden and she'd chop up some aloe vera and lemongrass and make us this weird stinking herbal tea. And I noticed looking back on it that I was definitely not like the other kids because I'd noticed when a kid in my class would get sick, they'd get the flu or something. Some of them would have it for a week. And I was never like that. I don't know if it was because my immune system was built up stronger because I grew up in the bush and I had dirt under my fingernails and I was allowed to be a kid, but kids that I went to school with, they would get sick and sometimes they'd be sick for a week with a cold. I would feel like I was getting a cold for half a day and then it'd go away. And my brother and I were kind of unique in our school because of that. And looking back on it, I honestly believe it was all the weird things that my mom gave us and the fact that we were allowed to have a normal childhood. We drank water from rainwater tanks. We were playing around in the dirt. We had sun on our skin every day. I didn't have an internet connection until I was 17. I mean, we we were kids. So, I guess going back to the ancestral thing and the thing that I'm really passionate about, which is taking humans as close to being back to our ancestral society as possible, I, I think from that point of view, my first biohack was my mum. Allowing us to have the childhood that children should have the food that we ate from was, was from our garden we were, had almost no electronics because the property that I lived on was solar power. again, our rainwater came from tanks uh, we had shoes off in the dirt every day like we we, we were kids we were we were no a better way of saying it we were humans. we weren't wearing shoes all the time we weren't staring into a TV screen like you know and that to me if I could condense what what I think biohacking should be, that's it. Go as close to being natural as you possibly can, and, and that's part of the battle. But if I had to say what my first biohacks when I was consciously trying to do it about 12 years ago when I started getting into this, I would either say one of two things. One being one of the ways that I think most people get into this whole obsession is meditation. And I know it's getting a little bit old hat now. Everyone's talking about meditation. 95% of Tim Ferriss' guests talk about meditation. It's something that we know that high performers do. But meditation would probably be that thing. And I'm going to say it again, because if you still haven't been caught by the meditation bug, go and meditate. It's going to change your life, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's heard that, but just go and do it. Maybe it's me finally that's going to get some listener out there that hasn't heard of or, or considered finally doing it, but start meditating. The other thing that I started taking would be, I guess, a herbal biohack that I started taking I would say close to 15 years ago now, and I wasn't taking it as a biohacking tool 15 years ago, but I was taking it as a supplement that I'd read some interesting things about and saw some scientific power behind it was Shilajit. And in case people haven't heard of what Shilajit is, it's basically a powder or a paste. Effectively, I I liken it to being like, oil. So the oil that we pull out of the ground to turn into petrol for our cars is basically the decomposed remains of dinosaurs and plants and things that have died millions of years ago and then turned into oil. Shilajit is a very similar substance, but it comes out of rocks in the Himalayas. So it's literally wedged between rocks up in the mountains. And as far as we know, it is the decomposing remains or the solidified, slightly preserved remains of dead plants. Now, this substance is, it smells disgusting, it tastes disgusting. I, I liken it to smelling or tasting like cigarette ash, especially in its powdered form. It's disgusting. But the scientific benefits of what we know that she legit can do to the human body is simply phenomenal. Luckily for me, I've been taking it for about 15 years. And I, I believe it's one of the reasons why even though I'm almost 35 now, people sometimes, especially when I shave my beard, I look like I'm a 12-year-old boy, and I credit Shilajit of being one of the greatest things that I've ever done for my skin health, even before I knew what it could do. So Shilajit has been used in Ayurveda for, as far as we know, around two and a half thousand years. So the the country that is now India, that wasn't India a long time ago, they've known of the power of this compound for a long time. Now it's, A lot quite commonly used by men to increase testosterone production, uh, which is one of the reasons I initially started using it. There are some studies that show that it can increase testosterone production in men by about 22%, which is quite considerable. But in terms of skin health, the studies are even more insane. So collagen is one of the fundamental things that we need to keep our skin and our bones and our joints healthy. Now, in scientific studies, taking... About a 1,000 milligrams of shilajit a day, usually 500 milligrams in the morning and 500 milligrams in the evening, which is how I now take it, has been shown to upregulate the the genes that are responsible for producing collagen in the human body by 1,200%, which is absolutely crazy. So even though I haven't been Take, even though I wasn't taking Shilajit initially for that reason, I'm glad that I started taking it 15 years ago because if the way that I'm aging now is any, any marker as to how good I'm going to look in my 50s or my 60s, I'm very glad that this is something that I started taking. So Shilajit, if you can get past the taste, the easiest way to take it is in a capsule form because then you don't have to taste it. I was for years taking it in its raw form. I thought that was the best option to take it, but I learned from Dr. Sani Raju of Natrion who is one of the probably the only supplier of shilajit in the world that supplies to the west that I actually trust because of their purification process and all that kind of stuff but taking raw shilajit in its pure form it's likely to be contaminated with heavy metals which is not something that you want so about the first 5 years that I was taking shilajit I was getting the benefit of it but I was also possibly ingesting some other things it's not definitive so by far the best way that you can take it is to take Purified shilajit in its powdered form, either in a capsule, or you can just take the powdered form itself and put it in a smoothie or something like that. Luckily you only need about a gram a day, which is great, because putting it in smoothies any more than that, it's gonna start making it taste like cigarette ash, which is not ideal. But about five hundred milligrams to a thousand milligrams of that in a smoothie it gives it this kind of weird, earthy, slightly metallic-y taste. You just kind of notice there's something weird and amazing maybe and herbal in there that's doing something, but you don't exactly know what it is. So Yeah. My first biohack that I probably implemented into myself, not necessarily knowing the power of it, but glad being doing it was Shilajit probably around 15 years ago.
0: Wow. That's really incredible. I've, yeah, I've tried it. I've tried it in a paste form actually, and you like add it to water and stir it and have it in the morning and it definitely tastes very earthy actually reminds me of kava but i don't know if you've ever had kava but that's so interesting that you are using that and you've been using that for so long because i've just started hearing about it now it's definitely not mainstream or anything yet so in terms of like skin health like it sounds like it's a pretty like important area for you and it is for like most people really what other like biohacks would you say that you are doing right now or that you've played around with in the last few years
1: Well, so my big thing is that, which is something that I know we both massively agree on is trying to Make biohacking more accessible to people. And I think going back to what I was saying at the start, people getting a bit too technical and being scared off by technological terms and all that kind of stuff. I think another thing that scares a lot of people off is they hear people talking about, you know, Ben Greenfield, another great example is Ben talks about, you know, he spends $50,000 a month on his longevity and all this kind of stuff. And some people just go, whoa, I can't afford that. This is out of my reach. So, What I've been trying to do, my big passion, and again, going back to herbal medicine and all this kind of stuff, is making things as accessible as I possibly can. So that tends to be my focus on a daily basis, finding scientifically backed compounds, herbs, medicines, things like that, that we've been using for thousands of years, that science is now showing that work. And more than that is trying to combine them in a way that you're getting more power from these compounds than you normally would just taking them on their own. So a great example of this is what a lot of people, what's quite commonly known these days is taking turmeric or curcumin with black pepper. So for people listening that don't know, turmeric is extremely rich in a compound called curcumin. Our curcumin is an incredibly powerful compound that can help our immune system. It can help fight disease. It can potentially fight cancer and a whole bunch of other things. It's unbelievably powerful. However, it's unfortunately not very bioavailable for the body, which means the body can't use a lot of the curcumin that you're putting into it. So taking turmeric, if you're the kind of person that takes turmeric tablets or pills or raw turmeric every day, great, don't stop doing it. But the fact is, is that your body is not able to use a lot of the curcumin that you're actually putting in into it. So a big passion of mine is finding compounds that enable us to make compounds more bioavailable when we use them together. So curcumin, when you mix it with black pepper, black pepper has a compound in it called piperin. And that piperin, when mixed with curcumin, makes the curcumin somewhere between around 800 to 1,000 times more bioavailable for your body. So you're actually absorbing about 1,000 times more of the curcumin or your body's able to use about 1,000 times more of it or 1,000 times better when you mix it with black pepper. So things like that are are so unbelievably interesting to me just by synergistically combining certain compounds that are found in nature. And and keep in mind, we're not extracting this. We're not taking the curcumin out of the turmeric and extracting it and putting it through some medical process to make it more powerful. We're literally just mixing freshly cracked black pepper with it and it it makes it more powerful. So an easy way to do that if people are taking turmeric, literally just put it in a glass of water, blend it up, put a huge pinch of freshly ground black pepper in it and drink it down. It's not going to taste amazing, but if you can help your body fight off cancer and disease and oxidative stress and DNA damage as a result of taking that, that's incredible. So there are some really amazing examples of this and I'll probably start going down the rabbit hole with this craziness now because this is what I'm unbelievably passionate about. So one of the things that All human beings, I believe, should be doing when it comes to biohacking or general health is giving their body the tools that it needs to fight off damage. So, one of the big problems, as I know you will agree, that is an issue with modern life of anyone that lives in a city or that has any device connected next to them or whatever, is that we are exposed to more damage than we ever have been before in human history. You look at beyond 11,000 years ago before humans discovered agriculture, we were living out in fields, we were Hunting and gathering. We had a feed on the ground all the time. There was no EMF. There were no cars polluting. There was no toxins in food. None of this. Our body had to fight off certain things, but it didn't have to fight off much. Now it's a completely different story. You are the average person in a major city in the West has around eight connected devices per person. So you're getting bombarded with all, all of that. You're inhaling cigarette smoke from people around you. You're inhaling car fumes. You're inhaling the excess jet turbine fuel of planes that are flying overhead, all of this is damaging your body and your body's having to fight harder than it ever has before. So we need to be giving our body the tools that it needs to be able to fight this stress the best. Now, there are an amazing amount of compounds and things that can help our body do this. And one of the things that's become extremely popular are, of course, antioxidants or polyphenols or phenolic compounds in general. Now you'll find phenols or polyphenols in a bunch of foods. You'll find it very heavily in spices. You will find them very heavily in things like blueberries, fresh fruit and vegetables. So generally, as long as you're eating a widely varied diet, a lot of colorful foods and things like that, chances are you're getting quite a lot of phenols or antioxidant compounds in your body. But there is a way to do that even better, which is again, something that I try and do whenever I can. So this is going to sound a little bit, probably people are going to roll their eyes and think this is too simple. But apart from things like blueberries and all these kinds of things that people that have heard are extremely high in phenols, which are extremely important for our bodies to fight off stress. One of the best things that you can start doing every day, and I will go into some more biohacking ways of how to make it more bioavailable, but is through extra virgin olive oil. This is one of the simplest and most accessible biohacks or biohacking tools that I can recommend to anyone to give your body more of the tools that it needs to fight off stress. So to start with extra virgin olive oil is one of the highest things that we know of in phenol content. It's extremely high in polyphenols like oleocanthal, which have been shown to fight off cancer. They basically can destroy inflammation and a ton of other stuff like that. So that's one thing that we, we know now that we have known for a long time but let's compare the phenol content in something else or in other foods that we know of that are high in polyphenols. So I'll go back to blueberries. So on average, and this is a very, 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 very broad average, blueberries have somewhere in the realm of about 5,000 milligrams of phenols per kilogram of fruit. However, that depends on a ton of factors. on where it was grown, it depends on how long it's been stored, it depends on whether it was frozen or or fresh, it depends on whether it's organic or not, what was sprayed on it, and all of this kind of stuff. So 5,000 milligrams of phenol content of blueberries, that's quite high. However, there have been some studies that have shown that in some cases when you finally actually get those blueberries into your body buying them fresh or from a frozen packet you may only be getting 5% of that because of how much that phenol content has degraded over time and let's face it the modern the modern way that we ship vegetables and fruits the modern ways that we produce it at extremely fast speeds with you know growth accelerators and all this kind of stuff is reducing this anyway and then the transport process reduces it even further so Let's say out of that kilogram of blueberries, out of the initial 5,000, you may be only getting 250 milligrams of those phenols in your body. Now, let's compare that with olive oil. So extra virgin olive oil on average has somewhere in the realm of around 1,000 milligrams of phenols per kilogram, which you might think, all right, that's only about 20% of what blueberries were. Great, fine. However it retains its phenol content. As long as you're storing extra virgin olive oil in a dark green glass bottle, like you see all good, good olive oil stored in, more often than not, it will retain all of that phenol content. So when a bottle of olive oil is tested for polyphenols or phenols in general, that score that it's given when it's tested, as long as it's stored in a dark glass bottle, somewhere dark, not exposed to a ton of heat, it will retain that content. So you can be basically guaranteed that If you're buying a bottle of extra virgin olive oil that has 1,000 milligrams of phenols per kilogram, you're getting that into your body when you eat it. However, that's an average. And again, I'm going to say like the blueberries, the phenol content of extra virgin olive oil considerably depends on whether it's where it's grown, whether it's organic, all these kind of stuff, where it comes from in the world. But you can get bottles of extra virgin olive oil if you look for it that have been tested that can have polyphenol content up to 3,000 to 5,000 milligrams of phenols per kilogram, which is about what blueberries have when they're just harvested and before they start degrading. And this is something that won't degrade. It's not something you have to worry about keeping in your fridge. It's not something you have to worry about. Am I getting 5%? This is something you can keep on a shelf or in a cupboard that is going to have this extremely high potency polyphenol content. So Another thing to keep in mind is that olive oil, extra virgin olive oil needs to be eaten fresh. If you heat it up, it starts destroying the polyphenol content. So don't cook with it. Cook with coconut oil, cook with something else that has a much higher smoking point and that it won't be destroyed. Use extra virgin olive oil as something you pour on food. Now, I'm going to go into this a bit more because I'm extremely passionate about this. So how do you tell if a bottle of extra virgin olive oil has high phenolic content? Well, you can find olive oil that has actually been tested for being high in phenols. So if someone is listening out there and is very interested in keeping a bottle of olive oil around to drink or to put on their food for their high phenolic content great, great idea. You can search on Google for oil that has been tested for being extremely high in phenols. But if you can't find it in your area, if you can't afford to order it, then there are a few key indicators to look at when selecting extra virgin olive oil. So the peppery taste that you get from olive oil sometimes, that's firstly an amazing indicator. The, the more of that peppery, pungent, spicy taste of the oil, chances are the higher in phenol content it will have. Also, if you can find an oil that was imported from a country like Greece or Cyprus or any of those countries from the Mediterranean that have an extremely high rate of sun and heat, most of those countries on average will have a better phenol content than something that was produced, let's say, here where I am in Australia or in the United States or anywhere else. Again, this is only an indicator. This is not a... By far, no one quote me on this saying this is always the way, but this is just a general indicator. But that's an amazing thing. Now, to anyone listening that has heard of Dr. Stephen Gundry, who is very famous for writing a book called The Plant Paradox, uh, he basically says that food is only a means to get more olive oil into your body because he believes it is so important. The polyphenol content and the phenols in general in olive oil are so incredibly important for the human body that you should only be thinking of food as a way to pour extra virgin olive oil on it to get more of it in your body. He personally says that he drinks about a liter of extra virgin olive oil on his own per week. Now, that is something that I also try to do, but that is also something that for people listening may think, how the hell can I drink a liter of extra virgin olive oil a week? If you can do it, I recommend it, but it's actually not that difficult if you put it in perspective. So you make a salad a day and you pour 50 mils on it. There's a lot of that bottle gone. You take a tablespoon of it a day just to drink it. There's another 30 mils gone. You put two tablespoons of it in a superfood smoothie, which I do quite regularly. And there you have very easily downed a liter of extra virgin olive oil into your body. Again, I will say, make sure you don't heat it. Just get it into your body because the phenols that are in this oil are so extremely important for your body. Now, Onto how to biohack the phenols even more powerfully. So there are thousands and thousands and thousands of studies out there that show the phenols in extra virgin olive oil and how incredibly powerful they are, how potent they are for the human body. Things like fighting cancer, fighting inflammation, all these kind of things that I've mentioned. However, there is also an extremely large body of evidence that shows that these phenols can actually protect our DNA like armor from damage. Now, this is actually a topic that I'm covering on my podcast tomorrow. I have an episode coming out just specifically on this, but I'll share it with your listeners as well, because I think it's so powerful. So in a 2016 study, it was shown that when the phenols in extra virgin olive oil were mixed with the phenols from the herb thyme, which is an extremely common herb that almost anyone in every, any supermarket in the world can get hold, hold of time when the phenols of these two compounds were mixed together it was shown that they had significantly higher effects of protecting the dna in humans and this was done by scientific lab study and it was proven without a doubt that it looked like it was uh, it affected a combination i think it was the nf kappa Pathway in the human body that showed there that were certain biomarkers when the phenols in thyme and olive oil were mixed and we ingested them, that it actually slowed the DNA damage on the human body that we're subjected to every single day. And what's crazy about this study is that when this study was done, it wasn't like these people were being given a ton of extra virgin olive oil. They were being given 25 milliliters of extra virgin olive oil a day, which is about a tablespoon mixed with. Time, the herb time. That's it. So, if you want to do something that will literally protect your DNA on a daily basis, drink extra virgin olive oil, mash up some thyme with it, the herb thyme, mash it up in it, and take a shot of that once a day. One tablespoon more if you can, and you are literally doing something that has been scientifically proven to protect your DNA. And that I think is one of the crazy things that show how powerful plant compounds can be. When you implement them in your life, you don't need drugs, you don't need craziness, extra virgin olive oil and time. you can literally protect your DNA.
0: That's incredible. It's funny you bring up Dr. Gundry. I just read his new book out. I don't know if you've read it. It's called The Longevity Paradox. And he brings it up again like the importance of olive oil and basically food is there just to get olive oil in our mouths. And like talks about how him and his wife have so much olive oil every week and like all these different things that they do. And a liter a week per person sounds like a lot. Like that is. Like I drink a liter of water every morning before coffee. And like, when I think about that in olive oil, drinking it or eating it, like it sounds very excessive. It sounds like a lot,
1: but it's, uh, I mean, my partner, Sorel and I, when we, first heard about this and I started doing some research into it because I I, I first heard about and I thought, you know, there's so much scientific backing about the the phenols in extra virgin olive oil and that they're considered one of the holy grails for longevity and all this kind of stuff. So I started to, to delve into it a little bit deeper and, you know, everything, like everything points to every bit of scientific research that we have points to the fact that, yes, this is correct. So we straight away went, all right, so we need to be drinking a liter of olive oil each a week. And at first we were just like, damn this is this is a lot of olive oil <laughs> yeah. so you know drinking a liter of water in the morning that's one thing but keep in mind you only have to drink about 130 mils of extra virgin olive oil a day and it's not that hard I mean two tablespoons is about 60 mils so put two tablespoons in a superfood smoothie maybe at some other point during the day just drink another tablespoon and there you've got basically two thirds of your intake, another tablespoon or two over a salad once a day or uh, over a steak that you've cooked or something like that. It's not that hard to do when you really think about it but I can't recommend highly enough and I can't recommend it highly enough based on the scientific backing that people need to be getting more extra virgin olive oil. And it is one of those things that it is worth spending money on. It is something that's not going to degrade as long as you take care of it. It is something that you can buy five or 10 liters at a time of good quality stuff and keep it under your, your, kitchen sink or somewhere and just use as much of it as you can. It is that powerful. So I think this is a big metaphor for how simple biohacking can be in terms of taking care of your body with something that Basically, everyone listening to this will have in in their home.
0: Yeah, you're so right. Olive oil is so accessible these days and there's so many different varieties and so much to choose from. So I think it is a good, almost like superfood. I know that's like a weird word to use these days, but like a superfood to bring in. And it's so interesting. You talk about mixing it with time because I've never heard that. I've never heard of that combo yet. So that's definitely something I'm going to try. I'm not at the level yet where I'm taking shots of olive oil, but I probably will After this, now that it's kind of come to the front of my mind a bit more. But you know, when people go out for food on like an average lunch day, like when people are at work, would you recommend that people get olive oil as a side for their salad or their veggies, or do you think that the olive oil that is provided by restaurants is just not high enough quality?
1: No, I don't think it's generally of high enough quality. What what people have to consider is that. Most of what makes food taste good when you're buying it, and let let's say, you know, I'm not talking about a standard junk lunch that most that some people are getting because I don't think anyone that's listening to this is going out in their lunch break and getting a McDonald's burger and fries. But you've got to consider that for the most part, even if you're going to a deli and getting a salad or whatever, most of the time, what's making that taste good, as is what's making most food that you buy outside of your home and you don't make yourself. What makes most of that taste good is one of four things. It's either a ton of butter, a ton of oil, a ton of sugar, or it's a ton of salt. And usually a combination of all these things. And if you know anyone that works in the restaurant industry, they will probably be you're probably very interested to ask them about how much butter and salt and oil is used in cooking in most restaurants this is why people say food always tastes better when I'm not at home because they just cover it in these things and I'm not saying that individually any of these things are bad butter is not bad if you're buying organic grass-fed butter olive oil is not bad if you're if you're not heating it up and you're you're buying extremely high quality stuff salt is extremely extremely good for you and is needed by the human body. As long as you're not buying things like sea salt or crappy standard salt, that most of it is filled with microplastics. But the thing is, most restaurants aren't thinking about this. They're buying average quality olive oil. It might be okay, but it might not be anything you can think of as a biohacking tool. They're probably using okay butter, but it could be pre-salted. It's, I guarantee most of the time, it's not grass-fed. So you're not only getting the butter, but you're also getting the grains that that animal has been eating its entire life in the butter, which is not good for you for your body. It's, it's covered in salt, and again, it's, it's going to be crappy sea salt at best that is filled with microplastics that are going into your body. And there's, for anyone that's listening to this that hasn't read the studies about how much salt is contaminated with microplastics, almost every salt on earth, and I'm not overstating this almost every salt on earth is contaminated with microplastics. And I'll say it one more time, it's that important. Almost every salt that you will buy on earth is contaminated with microplastics. If it comes from the sea, if it comes from a lake, if it's any salt whatsoever, if you're buying it and putting it into your body, you are putting microplastics in your body as well.
0: Does that include Himalayan salt?
1: No, it doesn't. So okay. the, the only salts that people should be trusting are salts that are mined out of rock. So Himalayan salt is... Perfect. It is Not only is it almost completely likely to not be contaminated with microplastics, but it also has some of the highest mineral content of any salt. So sea salt is quite high in mineral content, but it can't compare to Himalayan salt. It also can't compare to another salt that I I like to buy. It may not be as accessible to everyone, but fortunately for me, I live most of my year in Iceland. But volcanic lava salt is also or any kind of rock salt similar is also most, more, most likely not to be contaminated with microplastics. So getting back to it, yeah, if people get a salad and they get a side of extra virgin olive oil or olive oil with their salad, if they eat out during their lunch break, it might be okay, it might not. But the thing is these days, I'm not in the position where I, don't, where I want to take any risks with my health and I'm not saying that I don't slip up. And every now and again, I will give my cheat day myself a cheat day. I will give myself a pass to eat whatever the hell I want. If I want to go and eat a big shitty piece of fried chicken or, or go and get in and out when I'm in LA, I'll do it. And I won't feel any guilt for it because I'll say, this is my day to do this. And then every other day, I am at 100%. So I don't take any risks with my health apart from giving me a cheat day every now and again. And I, I I'm not saying that you need to hold yourself to as high standard as I do or hold yourself to the highest standard possible 100% of the time because you will go insane. I've tried to be this biohacker and live this biohacker lifestyle 100% of the time. And trust me when I say it is not achievable 100% of the time. Eventually, being a flawed, squishy human, you will want to lash out and you will want to give yourself a break, whether it's to have a night getting drunk with your friends or or whatever, everyone has their vice and everyone will slip up. But in saying that, you should at least be aware of what you're putting in your body most of the time and not have any illusions that just because you're getting olive oil from a salad bar that might be across from your work, you've got to consider that it might not be the greatest quality. It's most of what you're eating at restaurants, they're there to make money. And unless you're paying absolute top dollar or going to a restaurant that is specifically designed to be as health conscious as possible, most of the time you're not putting the right stuff in your body. So long story short, I recommend to people know what you're putting in your body, if possible, make it yourself. And also don't blame yourself if you slip up one day a week and decide to have a cheap meal, because that's also okay too.
0: Yeah, it's hard though, like going to restaurants and going out, the marketing is so appealing and it'll say like super green salad with all of these vegetables and things in them. And you think that you're making a healthy decision, but I mean, obviously, where did the vegetables come from? How old are they? What are they contaminated with? What's on them? There's so much to it. But like I used to work in the corporate world more than I do right now and you go out for lunch all the time. People go out every single day. Like some people never, ever pack a lunch. So they'll just go to cafes or they'll go, they, they even get like breakfast on the way, right? Whether it's like a bagel on a coffee. So it's a very, very big issue for a lot of people. A lot of people don't know what to order. So like if you were, if you had to go to a restaurant, like like what would you eat? What would you order?
1: That's a good question because I try not to, for the most part, unless I absolutely have to. And that's just because I'm trying to take better and better care of my body. But some things that people can more often than not without fail think are okay. So, I mean, if you're going to a restaurant and you're eating a big plate of greens, whether that's things like broccoli or kale, whether it's cooked or not, you know, any simple vegetables that haven't been tampered with too much are generally going to be the best option. If you can find a place that if, if you're at a restaurant that serves meat and you can find Meat that is specifically grass fed, that's generally going to be more often than not okay for your body. Again, it doesn't mean that that grass fed meat is not going to have hormones or antibiotics in it. It also doesn't mean that grass fed meat has been raised on grass its entire life because, by law, for example, in Australia, they already have to call something a grass fed steak if it's been fed grass the last three months of its life before it was slaughtered. So, again, this is like going back to those things where you can really go down the rabbit hole and drive yourself insane with every choice that you make, which is why I choose to control it. Going back to the, one of the definitions of biohacking, trying to control what I'm putting in my body. Most of the time, I, I more often than not prefer to cook for myself because I know exactly what's going into what I eat, but green vegetables usually always. Okay. Uh Try and avoid anything with grains in it in general, you know there, there's a lot of conflicting information about grains. All I have to say to people to convince them or, or, or do my best to convince people that grains aren't really that good for your body is to say that we've only been eating grains for about eleven thousand years until we discovered agriculture and learned how to control things like wheat. The human body before then it did not have any grains We didn't eat grass seeds, which is what grains are we ate. Green vegetables, we ate roots, we ate animals, we ate seafood, we ate things like that. Grains, more often than not, are going to be bad for you. Try not to eat them. Anything processed is going to be bad for you. Try not to eat it. Any animal that's had a shitty life, you're not only, and not to sound like a crystal hugging hippie, but you are eating the suffering of that animal that's being treated like shit its whole life. And I'm not saying that I'm a vegan or a vegetarian. I'm far from it. But I choose to eat meat that has been raised... That's had a life as close to being natural as possible. If I can find wild raised meat, a game, things like that, I'll eat it. Because I know that animal has had the life that it was supposed to have. If you're eating meat that was raised in the industrial food system, that was fed grains its entire life, that's been pumped with antibiotics, that's been pumped with hormones and all that kind of stuff, you are eating something that is going to damage you. And when anyone says that there's research out there that proves a vegetarian or a vegan lifestyle is healthier, than eating meat, they are correct to a certain extent. They're correct because most of the studies that show eating meat versus eating vegetables or a vegan lifestyle, for the most part, only show people that have been eating standard meat, meat that was raised in the standard industrial system, which is full of poison. And that meat is bad for you. And for the most part, if you subsist on a mostly vegetarian lifestyle, that's probably going to be healthier for you than eating meat. However, anyone that says that cutting out all meat altogether, especially meat that has lived a wild lifestyle, is completely incorrect. All you have to do is look at some of the ancestral civilizations like the Inuits and the Icelanders, for example, when all they were eating was almost 100% meat, like their diets almost consisted 100% of meat and nothing else. Those people are some of the longest lived people in the world. And that's because they were eating a natural product. So it doesn't matter what you eat. The long story short is it doesn't matter what you eat, whether it's a grain or a vegetable or meat or whatever, if it has been tampered with, if it has been sprayed with crap, if it's been pumped with toxins, if it is full of crap, that's not supposed to be in it, it's going to damage you. So, for that, from that point of view, I try and control as much as I possibly can. And yes, that does mean limiting the amount of times that I go out and eat, but I limit as much as I can any kind of process tampered with food. I try and eat everything that I know exactly what's in it because I know that that's going to be good for my body.
0: Yeah, I totally understand. And I'm at a point right now where I almost like cycle in and out of being vegetarian and vegan, like throughout the week. I've definitely decreased my amount of meat that I eat just from the books that I've read and podcasts and everything, and just like really being, you know, open to the latest research on it. So the people out there who do eat a lot of meat right now because it's, you know, habitual for them, that's how they grew up, like a lot of people in America and Canada, and they might not necessarily be able to afford grass-fed and grass-finished butter and meat and different things like that, if they do consume conventional meat, is there any sort of like supplement or herb that they can add to that that is going to decrease the inflammation that the meat might cause?
1: Yeah, there there probably are. So going back to like turmeric or curcumin, that is an extremely powerful tool for inflammation, but anything with a high polyphenol content or phenols in general will assist with this. But to those people who are eating a standard diet, if you are eating meat that is mostly from supermarkets and stuff, what I would say to you is I would say, if you can't afford to eat better meat, my recommendation would be to decrease your meat intake as much as you possibly can. If you can't afford to eat meat that has been raised basically as close to nature as possible, cut it out as much as you can. Because what you're eating is going to be basically toxic to your body. I Most of the time, I eat much less meat than I used to. And that's basically a byproduct of the fact that I travel so much these days. And when I can't get meat where I can trace the origin of it, I simply don't eat it anymore. When I'm at home in Australia, it's fine. When I'm at home in Iceland, it's fine because I can trace exactly where I'm getting my meat from. And in some cases, I'm buying it directly from the people who raise it. There's no supermarket, there's no middleman, there's no anything. So my recommendation would be for those people is to not think about something that you can do to limit the damage is the best way to limit that damage is to actually cut that toxic meat out of your life. If all you can afford is crappy, industrially raised stuff, it is better that you don't eat it whatsoever. If you need additional calories, start eating more good vegetables and covering them with oil. Oil is so calorie dense. I think a tablespoon of olive oil has about 100 calories in it. So you want to make yourself a plate of roasted vegetables at night. You need an extra 500 calories put 5 tablespoons of olive oil on it done easy so yeah in my opinion it it would be to definitely do what you're doing which is is if you is cutting out as much meat as possible unless you can get the absolute best quality you can and it's one of the reasons that i really don't agree with this whole carnivore diet trend that is going around now there are a lot of people out there that do have some correct information and for example i just touched on the fact that some of the longest lived societies in the world subsisted primarily on meat. And for example, the Inuits are a great example of this. They, they ate almost exclusively seal and whale and fish. And those people lived an extremely long time with almost no disease. That's changing a lot because a lot of these cultures are very heavily alcohol dependent and all this kind of stuff. So you can't trust any modern data. But before all this stuff was implemented, these people were living extremely long, healthy lives, subsisting on meat. What a lot of people that are that are doing this carnivore diet thing aren't either aren't talking about or aren't doing themselves is most of these people are eating crap meat they're eating meat that's coming from a supermarket and in my opinion the only way to do a carnivore diet is basically living off wild meat completely or living off meat that has lived as close a possible life to its Natural life, the way it would have lived in nature. If you're doing this carnivore diet thing and you're not doing that, you're probably doing more harm than good.
0: Yeah, the carnivore diet is, it just blows my mind that that's a thing in general. Like that, that is a trend now. I think in terms of dieting, it seems like we're just going from like these ideas of like vegan, paleo, vegetarian to more and more strict of like fasting and keto and the bulletproof diet and now carnivore. And it's just, it's a lot and it's so restrictive and it also has its own issues, bag of issues like most, most diets really do. But I just want to touch on something quickly. As someone who travels a lot as well right now, how do you manage the nutrition aspect of biohacking when you travel? Like, Do you eat anything on the plane or do you just fast?
1: yeah i I fast a lot I fast, I fast a lot when I travel plain food not only does it not taste great because uh, when you 're at altitude there is uh, the less moisture the the smaller amount of moisture in the air actually damages well, it doesn 't damage your taste buds it dries out your taste buds and your nose so it actually makes food taste worse so when everyone's, anyone in the past has heard that old myth that plain food tastes like crap it 's actually for a scientific reason but i don 't not eat plain food for that reason i just don 't eat it because i can 't again trust what is in it even you know occasionally when I fly business class for clients and things like that, you know, even business class food I don't trust because it's not I can't trust what is going into my body. So fasting is not only extremely beneficial for the cellular autophagy process and your for your body to purge damaged and cancerous cells, which only happens after you haven't eaten for about 16 hours, but it's just great for giving your body a rest. And the thing is is that our body uses so much energy when we have to process food that it can't almost do anything else, which is why we feel sluggish after we eat, which is why so many people report feeling so energetic and amazing after they've done the first 24 hours of a fast. And it's because our body has these natural reserves of energy and it doesn't need to be eating all the time. And again, going back to sort of ancestral wisdom, our ancestors used to fast all the time, not because they had to or not because they chose to, but because that was the fact of life. Sometimes they're only eating once a day because and the rest of the time, the rest of the 24 hours, their body was in a fasted state. So I see travel now as as a benefit. It's something that allows my body to fast. However, on the other hand, unfortunately, a lot of people don't aren't aware of how many incredibly damaging stresses are put on the human body when we travel. So first off, you've got to look at the circadian rhythm disruption, which we now know is likely leading to people that that, that disrupt their circadian rhythm quite regularly. It's it's an, an indicator for an increased risk of getting basically all diseases. So if you want a higher risk of cancer, of diabetes, of heart disease, of all of that, then disrupt your circadian rhythm quite regularly, which is one of the reasons that I'm starting to travel less and less because I just don't want to, because I don't want to disrupt my circadian rhythm. I don't want to keep my body clock out of whack. So it's something I'm trying to limit as much as I can. I still travel between LA and Iceland and Australia, but I'm trying to do it in blocks where I don't do it for you know, a month and a half at a time. So that's an extremely damaging part of travel. The other damaging part of travel is the radiation that you're subjected to. Not only are you in a magical flying tube in the sky that's surrounded by electronics, but the further you get away from the surface of the earth, the thinner the air becomes. Now, air, as funny as it sounds, is extremely important for for, for reflecting cosmic radiation away from the earth. The thicker the air is, so the closer we are to the crust, the more air density there is and the more molecules that there are that can reflect radiation coming from space, which is, you know, we have an extremely powerful source of radiation, which is our sun, which thankfully gives all life to us, but it also can be extremely damaging and our, our, our atmosphere helps to protect us. So when you're in a plane and you're far away from the earth, because the air is so much thinner, if you are flying, you're being subjected to considerably more cosmic radiation than when you're on the crust of the earth. And it's getting to the point now where airline workers, uh, because of their radiation exposure, there's a a growing movement that airline workers should be classified as radiation workers with all the research that's coming out now. So think about that every time you fly, that you are getting subjected to more radiation than you ever should be subjected to. Over a lifetime of considerable travel, especially if you're a business person and you're in the air quite regularly, this is likely going to put you at an increased risk of basically all diseases. How can you mitigate that? Well, one way to mitigate it is by not having a window seat, by putting yourself as far from the skin of the plane as you possibly can. Although there's not a lot of scientific backing to support this yet, Common sense, as well as the fact of having a shield between you and this radiation, definitely makes sense. So sit as close to the middle of the plane as you possibly can. Another thing that you can use that is my basically my go-to supplement when I travel is molecular hydrogen. So there are, at this current stage, I think about 2,000 peer-reviewed studies on how powerful molecular hydrogen is as a supplement. It is basically, as far as we're aware, we're starting to get led into the fact that it's probably one of the most powerful antioxidant compounds that we possibly can put in our body. Now you might say that sounds maybe not that special. Hydrogen is by far the most common element in the universe. As far as we know, it is everywhere around us. However, our body doesn't absorb it in the way that when you take a molecular hydrogen tablet or an inhaler, I recommend the brand that I recommend in terms of taking molecular hydrogen is Truzy. Uh, If anyone wants to seek Truzy out, go for it. Uh, If anyone wants to use my discount code, they can use the code bioalchemy and you'll get like a 20% discount off it, I think, from last last count but i'm not saying that to go and get you to buy it use my code I, I don't care i don't get anything from it but the fact is is that you should be using molecular hydrogen when you travel the only thing unfortunately from this this biohack is that it's not the cheap one it's not it's not i'm not saying it's unaccessible to people but a bottle of it is about 80 us dollars if i remember correctly it's about it's 60 tablets in a bottle and i recommend taking about two tablets every hour or two when you are in the air uh, i think it's that important so going back to something it's not necessarily a herbal supplement but it is something that you should in my opinion be taking if you travel quite regularly it could be end up racking up quite a cost. But apart from that, yeah, I I definitely, definitely recommend it. The other things that I do to mitigate travel is mitigate the damage from travel is I try and ground myself as soon as I arrive, which is just literally getting my feet on the earth or, or some grass for about 20 minutes. And for anyone that says I can't do it because I'm landing in a cold place, I live in Iceland and I get outside even when it's snowing and I do it as soon as I land. So if I can do that, you can do it. And it might be a little bit painful on your feet, but it's definitely worth it. Also, uh, the other thing that you can do that can assist is taking an Epsom salt bath after you travel. May not be as accessible if you're traveling at hotels, but if you're coming home, have a really long Epsom salt bath after you travel. But just trying to get your body on on its local time zone as soon as you can and not punishing your body while you travel of course no alcohol no coffee while you travel because they're just going to dehydrate you as is air travel going to do as well Uh, drink a shitload of water take molecular hydrogen if you can and yeah, try not to sit next to a window because you're probably getting more radiation than you realize.
0: Those are awesome. Those are definitely uh, travel biohacks that I haven't heard of actually. So the ones I dabble in is more like activated charcoal I take or what's the other one? Oh, NAC, like N-acetylcysteine, which is a precursor to glut- glutathione. So those are, those are the ones that I've always taken. But molecular hydrogen sounds very interesting like that. Yeah, I haven't even heard of anybody taking that while traveling. And also what you're saying like sitting away from the window seat is really yeah, I definitely sit next to the window every time I can because it's easier for me to sleep and I try and like sleep throughout the whole flight and there's almost like a bit more space cuz you can lean on something, but now I think you've gonna you've kind of made me rethink it.
1: Yeah. And I also don't recommend that people, I used to be a big proponent of, you know, taking a melatonin tablet just, you know, as soon as I got on a flight to knock myself out, you know, sometimes I'd even, you know, smoke a joint or something before I'd get on a flight, just so I'd be so stoned that all I would do would be sit in a plane seat and fall asleep. Or what a lot of other people do is drink uh, a shitload of alcohol, which knocks them out and you're just damaging yourself. And I used to recommend doing that because sleeping through a flight is quite easy. I do recommend sleeping through a flight if when you're sleeping on the plane, it is at the time zone that you're landing, that is the time that you should be asleep. However, also one of the things that is, is not causing, is not doing anything good to your body is staying immobile in your seat. So I generally recommend drinking as much water as you can, which helps from the hydration point of view. But by drinking a lot of water, it's also going to keep you getting out of your seat every 30 minutes to use the bathroom or every hour to use the bathroom. And for me, to keeping your circulation going, I will also go to the back of the plane and I'll just do like once an hour, I'll do like 30 squats to make it even more powerful. I look like an idiot sometimes, but keeping your circulation going is extremely important. But melatonin, even though I used to use it to knock myself out on planes, I will use it to help me regulate my circadian rhythm and get me on my local time zone if I can't fall asleep. Be aware to people that do take melatonin quite regularly that it is not over the long term a quite a good thing to do for your body because your body will get used to the exogenous melatonin that you're putting into it and it will start upregulating its own melatonin production to keep up. So try not to do that very frequently, but I generally recommend only sleeping on a flight if that's the time that you should be sleeping as per your local time zone when you land to start getting your circadian rhythm locked in. Otherwise, moving on a flight is moving and drinking a ton of water is most likely a better idea.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know people who will change their watches or their time on their phone to the time that They like the destination's time. So then like whenever you're looking at your phone or looking at your watch, it's actually you're already tricking your brain into thinking that you're in the new time zone. And when I've done this, it's been very helpful. And then you stay awake and do whatever, like watch TV on the flight, like during the daytime and then sleep during the appropriate times during that.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of doing that as well. Just something you've touched on as well. I, I do use activated charcoal as well for flights. I think it's, a, it's, it's an amazing tool to remove toxins for your body. Another thing that everyone should invest in, it's, it's a biohacking tool that just about everyone should be using in their daily life to remove as much blue light as possible. Uh, just some blue blocking glasses. I always recommend raw optics, but they are essential for flying as well because even if you're not staring into your little blue entertainment screen in front of you to limit your own blue light exposure, all of the light around you, everyone else's screen is going to be damaging you most of the time if you're trying to keep your circadian rhythm in check. So get your own blue light blocking glasses and, uh, and hopefully bring them on every flight. I don't use them at home every day, but on flights, they are definitely an essential tool.
0: Yeah, I use them as well. And I actually, um, I take my contacts out. So I wear two pairs of glasses, <laughs> my prescription ones and my blue blocking glasses. And then I wear a hoodie and a long sleeve just to like make sure there's no blue light on my skin or any of that. So I look absolutely ridiculous. And I, I've also done like worn that doing yoga in the aisles or like it, the squats in the back, just like you do. And people just look at you like you're nuts. But
1: Yes, as soon as you've got blue, blue light blocking glasses on, most people think that you look a little bit sort of insane. But yeah, I, I definitely think it's just so super important. I, I don't, I'm just getting to the stage now where I don't give a shit what everyone thinks of what I look like as long as I'm taking care of myself because let's face it, the damage that we're getting subjected to, it's not getting any, it's not getting any easier for our bodies to deal with. So I just need to give my body all the tools that it needs to fight off the, the world in general the best that it can.
0: Yeah, exactly. And if it makes you feel better, then like, who cares what the other people think?
1: Like, yeah, it I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you yeah. more.
0: Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really great chatting. My pleasure. What a great episode with Leon today. I learned so much from him, as I'm sure you did as well. Let me know what you think of the episode and what you think of the podcast. You can shoot me a message on Facebook, Instagram. You can write an iTunes review, whatever you want to do is cool. And look out for a new episode coming every week. I have a ton of amazing guests lined up that I have recorded with and talked with and some really, really cool info is coming out soon about biohacking, making it accessible for everybody and affordable for everybody and that's what it's all about. And that's what I share online through social media as well. So if you wanna follow me, I'm at Biohacking Britney for basically everything. So check it out. And thanks for listening today.